every one of us is all too familiar with the symptoms, headaches, the inability to concentrate, insomnia, soreness in our shoulders and our necks, gastrointestinal problems, and really short fingernails. I'm not talking about a virus this morning, I'm talking about worry and anxiety, something that each and every one of us struggles with in varying degrees. Our passage today tells us to not be anxious, and our passage promises us the peace of God. Verse 7 mentions the peace of God. Verse 9 mentions the God of peace. What Paul is saying here is that we can take our worry and our anxiety and give it to God and that God will give us his peace. Proverbs 12.25 says that anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word will make him glad. This here is a good word for us when we face worry and anxiety. Paul gives in the course of this passage four commands. One prohibition, something he tells us that we are not to do, and then three positive admonitions, three commands that he gives us to live out so that we would experience the peace of God as we follow the God of peace. Here's the first one. It's quite obvious. Stop worrying. I'm just getting that right from verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, before we dive into verse 6, we need to just take a step back and look at the end of verse 5, where Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Now, we looked at this last week, the Lord is at hand. This was the whole motivation for why Syntyche and Euodia need to be reconciled. This was the motivation for rejoicing and the motivation for being reasonable was because the Lord is at hand. At hand means that he's, the Lord is close. He's close in terms of his return, like Matthew 24, 44, that the Son of Man could come back at a time when we do not expect it. And he's close right now, relationally, spiritually, like Matthew 28, 20, surely I am with you always to the end of the age. And the Lord being at hand, the Lord being close, that explained the motivation for everything that came prior in Philippians chapter 4, but it's also the motivation for why we should not be anxious. You see, as our world, as our broader culture has become increasingly secularized, we have become exponentially anxious. When I say secularized, I mean when our world tries to live without God. When our world ceases to think about our problems and solutions in terms of spiritual or theological or biblical categories, then our world is actually becoming more and more anxious. I mean, it's well documented that people all around us in our society, in the church, outside the church, we are anxious as a culture. We are worried. We are weighed down, as it says in Proverbs chapter 12. And what has been happening in our society over decades and decades can actually also happen in the life of a Christian. You see, our, our society has rejected the idea of, of there being a God who is in control. And so, if God is not in control, if there isn't an all-powerful God who has a plan, then our society has to say, well, then I guess it's up to us. Us as individual human beings, we need to be the ones who 
come up with the plans. And we need to be the ones who have the power to carry out those plans. And the reason why anxiety is so ubiquitous in our culture is because we know we don't have the power. And we know we don't have the plan or the solutions, but there's nowhere else to turn. And what's been happening in our society on a macro level can happen in my life and it can happen in yours. Even when we do believe in God, sometimes we live like he doesn't exist. Sometimes we forget that he is in control and that he does have the power and he is carrying out a plan and we somehow think that it's up to us. You see, worry is simply when our, when our self-reliance collides with reality. And that self-reliance then becomes self-pity. Where we think that we're in control, that we think that it's all up to us. We forget about God and then we realize that we don't have the power. We don't have a plan. And then we start to feel sorry for ourselves. We have certain things that we desire, that we want. And then we worry, what if I don't get that? What if, what if that doesn't happen? And then there are things that we are afraid of. We don't want to lose or we don't want to have happen to us. And we start to worry, what if that comes true? We start to think about worst case scenarios. And it starts running around in our minds. That's what worry is. But Paul says, remember, the Lord is at hand. Matthew 24, 44, he's coming back soon. Whatever you're worried about is going to happen. Listen, it's not always going to be like that. Christ is going to return and make all things new. And whatever you have to go through, he is Matthew 28, 20. He is with you always to the end of the age. He's going to help you get through whatever you're worried about is coming around the corner. Paul says, the Lord is at hand. Remember, God is real. God is with you. God is in control. God has a plan. God has all of the power. Place your faith in him. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. The word anxious means to be pulled apart. Many of us are weighed down and pulled apart by worry and anxiety in our lives. What Paul here is saying is nothing new. He's simply quoting the Lord Jesus when he says, do not be anxious. Remember on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus famously said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. 
Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In verse 25, Jesus says, do not be anxious. In verse 31, do not be anxious. Verse 34, do not be anxious. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Remember that the Lord is at hand. Corey ten Boom famously said, worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it empties today of its strength. So how do we stop worrying. If our worry is over here and God's peace is over here, how do we access that peace? Paul says that we access peace through prayer. Keep reading in verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Prayer is the way that we give God our anxiety and God gives us his peace. He, he talks about prayer in a number of terms. He, he talks about letting your request be made known to God and, and, and he uses the word prayer and the word supplication and the word thanksgiving. Now, I want to zero in on these two words, supplication and thanksgiving. Supplication involves the assumption that you lack something. In the, in the Greek word and in the English word is this idea of supplying, sup, supply, supplication. It's saying, Lord, I don't have something and I need it. I'm asking you to supply it. Now, oftentimes we think in terms of material things. Jesus, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about the clothing and, and food. And yes, we need to trust that God will provide our daily bread and ask him to provide those things for us through prayer. But one of the other things that we lack is we lack virtue. We lack character. We lack strength. One of the things that I'm asking God to supply for me are things like courage and self-control and patience and wisdom and love so that, so that I can be all that God wants me to be as a husband and as a father, as a friend and as a, as a pastor. These are things that I know I lack and I'm asking God to supply for me. So prayer is asking God to supply, but then the, the other word he says is with thanksgiving. We are to give, th we're, we're supposed to look at what we don't have and ask God to give it to us, but we're also supposed to thank God for what he has already given. We see this modeled in one of the, the great prayers of the Old Testament, Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, it says that he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Colossians 4.2 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always and for everything. All circumstances, always and for everything, we are supposed to be giving thanks. Paul says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Don't worry about anything, pray about everything. And as you're praying, give thanks for everything. It's incredible when we think about God. And that we can pray to him about everything. You know, there's, there's no problem that's too big for God because nothing's impossible for him. Nothing's, there's no degrees of difficulty for an omnipotent God. So there's nothing too hard for him. And there's also 
nothing too small for him that he doesn't care about. I mean, the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. In, in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, it says, Cast your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. There's nothing too big and there's nothing too small. God can handle the big things and God cares about the small things. Pray about everything. H.B. Charles says, Whenever you start to worry, stop and pray. The way to be anxious for nothing is to be prayerful in everything. Be prayerful in everything. And the result is peace. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're worried and anxious. We pray. And the result is peace. We bring God our worry. God gives us his peace. The peace of God. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says that you keep him in perfect peace whose heart is stayed on you. Colossians 3.15 says let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. It says that we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's a peace that, that works inward and upward and outward. Listen, the circumstances may not change, but we change. God does a work in us. He gives us his peace, and that changes everything. And it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Jesus said in John 14, 27, he says, peace I, I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you. His peace is not like the peace of this world. The peace of this world is, is subject to understanding. But Jesus here gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. We have, a, we have the opportunity when we pray to get this supernatural peace in our lives. To no longer worry, like Jesus said in Matthew 6, the Gentiles, the nations, the rest of the world is worried about what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear or whatever else we're worried about. There's a whole list of things we're all worried about in our world right now. We're worried about this virus. We're worried about the economy. We're worried about politics. We're worried about the climate. We're worried about our culture. And people around us, including ourselves, we're worried about loved ones, friends and families, relationships, singleness, marriage, infertility, children, jobs, unemployment, stress, all of these things. We're worried about all of these things, but we can have a peace that surpasses all understanding. Even if none of our exterior circumstances change, we can be changed by the life-transforming peace of God. And then Paul uses an interesting metaphor here to describe what peace does. It says, it says the peace of God will guard our hearts. The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This is why it's so interesting because, I mean, to, to the word guard there, it's pretty simple to be in protective uh, custody. It's a it's a word that simply describes a soldier or a guard watching over someone or something. And why this is so interesting is because as Paul is writing this, he is personally being guarded. 
Remember when we did that overview from Acts chapter uh, 16 all the way to Acts chapter uh, 28 to, to look at what had happened to Paul and how he ended up in prison, the circumstances behind writing this book. And in Acts 28, when he arrived in Rome, he says, when he came into Rome, Acts 28 verse 16, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Wherever Paul went, the soldier went with him. If anyone wanted to come and visit Paul, the soldier was guarding. The soldier said, you're not getting in here without my permission. So listen, when worry and anxiety come to the door, peace is the guard that says, you ain't getting in here. This isn't happening. This person, this heart, this mind is in my protective custody. So stand down. Paul knew what it was to be guarded and he uses this metaphor to talk about our the peace of God guarding our hearts and our minds how desperately do we need that Paul talks about our heart he talks about our mind that leads us to our second or our third point the second positive uh, command here's point three to start thinking to start thinking. In verse 8 he says, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Paul gives this list of virtues that we are to think about. Whatever is true, Truth is that which corresponds to reality, that which is reliable, that which is faithful. Honorable means noble, honest, dignified, elevated, upright. Whatever is just. That the justice is based off what is just, what is right, what is conforming with the law. The Greek word there is dikaios. And when merchants were weighing things in a scale, as soon as the scale was balanced, the merchant would say dikaios. It's fair, it's even, it's just. Christians need to be concerned and thinking about what is true and what is honorable and what is just. He goes on to say, whatever is pure, that, that word is hagnos. It's where we get, get our word for saint and for holy. Whatever is lovely, that means a beautiful or attractive. The NIV translates it as pleasing. Whatever is commendable, that means having a good reputation to be spoken well of, to be admired. If there is any excellence or virtue, anything worthy of praise, these are the things that we are supposed to think about. Because loved ones, if we are not careful, we talked before, we've got to think about thinking. We need to take a moment and consider what is on our minds. And what are we allowing? Romans 12 makes it very clear we're supposed to renew our minds. But so often our minds can be conformed to the ways of this world. You see, we live in a world that doesn't say whatever is true. Our world says, well, whatever is true for you is true for you, but not true for me. We live in a world where truth is relative, but we have to consider whatever is true. We don't live in a world that's concerned with whatever is honorable. We live in a world that's concerned with whatever is popular. 
whatever gets the most likes on social media. There's no concern for doing what's right or conducting ourselves with dignity and honor. It's just being popular. It's being liked. Loved ones, we are not living in a world that is considering whatever is just, whatever is dikaios, whatever is even. No, we are living in a world where whatever group shouts the loudest, whoever can prove that they are the most outraged, we are living in a time of mob rule and counterculture where there's no due process, there's no balancing of the scales, they're simply blasting people on social media and being outraged. Our world is not concerned with whatever is pure, but whatever is sexually suggestive or explicit. No sense of innocence or purity or holiness. We are not living in a world that is considering or thinking about whatever is lovely, whatever is truly beautiful. Rather, we're considering things, whatever is airbrushed and Botoxed, whatever a distorted and unattainable idea of beauty our culture is putting forward. But loved ones, we need to think about whatever is lovely. Loved ones, our world is not asking if it, is it whatever is commendable or if anything is commendable. People don't carve out their identity these days by building up the reputation of those that they respect, rather tearing down in a dishonorable and undignified way their enemies who disagree with them. And loved ones, we're not concerned, we're not asking if there's any excellence, no, we're just wondering is there any entertainment value? Is there any way just to sort of numb the emptiness in our world? Is there anything worthy of praise? Again, our world is so empty, looking for something to praise, but nothing is worthy. How do we renew our minds? Loved ones, we renew it by focusing on Jesus. Whatever is true, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Whatever is honorable, Jesus is the one who is worthy of our honor. Whatever is just, Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Whatever is pure and holy, he is the only holy one and he has made it possible for us to become saints who are holy ones. Whatever is lovely, Jesus is the source of all beauty and teaches us to pursue inner beauty. Jesus is commendable. Jesus is excellent. Jesus is worthy of praise. So think about Jesus. Let Jesus and the gospel be the filter that will help purify our thinking to get rid of all of the additives and the extras and the impurities of this world and our flesh and think pure thoughts, honorable thoughts, lovely thoughts, commendable thoughts. Think about Jesus. And as we're allowing Jesus to filter our thinking, as the Spirit is renewing our minds, we can, we can look at our world. We can look at things like architecture and art and music and design and technology and literature and history and film. And we can look at God's common grace and we can look at people in the image of God who are creating and doing things that are commendable and honorable. I'm not saying reject the world outright. I'm saying redeem 
and receive what God has given us according to his common grace. These virtues that are listed here, we can see all over our world. We see them most clearly in the word of God and in the Son of God, but we can also see them in God's world when we view God's world through the lenses of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we're to stop worrying, we're to start praying, we're to start thinking, and then fourthly, we are to start practicing, to start practicing. Verse 9 says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Basketball starting up again this week, and I, I know you're probably excited about that, and I just, for Allen Iverson fans who are out there, we're talking about practice. We're talking about practice. And so Paul here is saying to put into practice what we have, what we have learned and received and heard and seen. Paul here describes different ways that we are supposed to grow as disciples. There, there is a didactic, formal teaching component to discipleship. There's information that we just need to learn. We need to learn information about the Bible. We need to learn information about God. We need to know the information about the gospel, information about what it means to be human, information about the church. There are certain things that just require book work, that require reading. And Paul here mentions that. He says, what you have learned and received. When Paul was there in Philippi, he taught them some things. He sat them down. He opened up the scrolls. He explained to them the scriptures. This is what I'm doing right now. I'm, I'm teaching you some things. I'm hoping that you're learning some things, that you're receiving some things from the Word of God. That's part of discipleship. That's preaching and books and courses and lectures and videos and podcasts. That's one aspect of discipleship. But then there's also what Paul says, what you have heard and what you have seen. The everyday conversation and interactions. Not necessarily when Paul was standing in front of a group of people teaching, but listening to how Paul wrestled with, with, with different issues or ideas as they came forward. Listening and watching the way Paul interacted. You see, there is a formal teaching component that is important in growth and discipleship, but there is also a mentorship, life-on-life -life component. Not just courses and books and lectures and videos and podcasts, but also small groups and counseling and coffee meetings and 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 talking in the church foyer. I hope we can do that again sometime soon. And serving together on a ministry team. There are certain things that are taught, and then there are certain things that are caught, that, that you just sort of observe and pick up. Think about how our kids learn. They, they read books, and we teach them how to learn, but they're also just always watching their parents and watching their older siblings so we teach in a formal way but we also have them learn simply by observing our lives that's what we need to do as disciples and Paul says listen you've been learning formally and informally in terms of lecture and in terms of mentorship and influence and example but now he says you've got to practice these things Basketball and hockey leagues are all restarting uh, this week. Now, 
It, it would be wrong for the Raptors and the Leafs just to, so, to sort of get their uniforms and get the game plan and get the rule book and to get the equipment and just go there and sit in the arena. No, they're supposed to put these things into practice on the court, on the ice. They're supposed to get in the game. Paul is telling the church at Philippi, get in the game. Listen, it's not enough just to have the recipe and the ingredients. No, you're supposed to put the ingredients together and put it in the oven and then eat it. Practice these things. It's not just enough to gather the content. We've got to live it out. The Christian life is meant to be lived. The Christian walk requires us to move forward, to put these things into practice. So what we've observed from Paul, what we've observed from other mature Christians, what we've learned as we've studied the Bible and theology, it's not enough just for us to learn that content. We have to live that life. We have to live that life. And it says that when we do that, when we practice these things, it says the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Who is the God of peace? Who is the one who gives us the peace of God? Loved ones, it's Jesus. It's the one that we're supposed to be thinking about. Is the one in whose name we are to pray so that we can give God our anxiety and receive his peace. Jesus, Isaiah 9, 6, is the prince of peace. At his birth, the angels proclaim glory to God in the highest and peace to those who with whom he is well pleased. In the middle of the storm in Mark 4, 29, Jesus declared, peace, be still. After he suffered and died and rose again, the first words he spoke to his disciples in John 20, verse 19, was the words, peace, peace to you. And it's only in Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1, where we have peace with God. And when we have peace with God, we can experience the peace of God and we can walk and live our lives in relationship with the God of peace. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I know that many of us struggle with worry in many different ways. And Lord, I know that there are uh, particular brothers and sisters in our church right now who are being crushed by the weight of anxiety and worry in their lives, Lord. God, I pray that they would know how loved they are by uh, their pastors, by the leaders of our church. I pray that they would know how loved they are by you. I pray that moment by moment that they would cast all of their anxieties on you, big and small. I pray that all of us, Lord, would give you our worry and that you would give us your peace, God, because you have given us your Son, who is the Prince of of peace. May we hear his words in the midst of the storm saying, peace be still. May we see him in the locked room filled with fear. May we hear him speak to us as he spoke to the disciples when he rose again saying, peace. Lord, we love you. God, we want to follow you. Help us to practice these things. Help us to think about these things in the name of your Son and for your glory that we pray. Amen.